All right, welcome to Real Talk with Real Life. This is your host, Ryan Riggs. On today's episode, we have Kevin Brent. Kevin uh, is currently at Howard Law School or Howard School of Law. I don't know how you say it, Kevin. What's the proper proper terminology? Howard University School of Law, HU. Okay, okay HU, which is a historically black college and university. Um, you know, he has been an ally of mine uh, and, and a, just a, 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 a good support and also a good um, person that I've kind of watched make things happen in his life after overcoming tons of obstacles. And so I wanted to have Kevin on because I think, um, you know, I've been watching you, man, and I've watched, uh, you know, your passion and drive and desire and just, um, you know, I'm real big on, you know, the law of attraction and, you know, uh, going after what you want and and, and manifesting things in your life. And, and, um, you know, I've watched you do that. And so, I wanted to have you on to kind of talk a little bit about where you came from, talk a little bit about what drives you, talk about, you know, all that type of stuff. So welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Kevin. I'm a person in long-term recovery. What that means to me is that I haven't found it necessary to use drugs, to drink alcohol. And um, since December the 18th of 2009, a little over nine years, and um Yes, I'm a first-year law student, 1L, um, at Hustle, uh, Howard University School of Law. And um, I guess what drives me is um, my story. You know, um, like you said, I come from a lot of obstacles when I was younger. Um, I'm from originally from Southern California. I was born in Montclair, California. And um, San Bernardino County, and we lived in Pomona, California, which is Los Angeles County. My mother, she had me as a teenager. Um, my father is a is an addict. I, I believe he's in recovery right now. I don't really have a relationship with him. I'm not sure what his status is. I grew up in the system, group homes, uh, foster care, uh, probation, juvenile. Um, Got into a lot of trouble, started drinking and using um, at a young age, just trying to figure out the world, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration about not having my father around, being so poor and a lot of abuse in the household. And um, but I think what changed my my mentality was um, I read a book called The Autobiography of Malcolm X and um I fell in love with that book. I read it a hundred times and um, Malcolm started talking about changing his life through education and in, in prison. And I was just drawn towards that book and, and I just fell in love with learning and I just always wanted to read. I was always curious about, you know, different things. And I was reading and reading and reading and studying and studying and studying. And I ended up going to, four different high schools in three different states and moving all the time. And, but I was always in a book, you know, that always gave me a, a sense of relief, the pain. And, um, but still, you know, I still drank, you know, and I was still disruptive and still getting in trouble with the law as a juvenile. And um, it wasn't really until I got into recovery that I was able to allow that, information and, and passion and, and, and anger and, and drive to, to be productive in society and um, go back to school and go and, and live my dreams. So what was, so what was college? So I know you went to VCU and um, I think you had like a couple runs or, or at least one previous run before you got into the, uh, you know, really took off and, and have been on the, the path that I've watched you on. But I know before that you kind of had a, had a time where you went to Virginia Commonwealth University or, or I think it was VCU, right? And then you, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't do very well and then got back in it. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. I graduated high school and um, I went to VCU. And this was the first time I was by myself. I was living on dorm. I was at Cabinets Hall right across the street from J. Sergeant Reynolds. It was a co-ed dorm, and um, I have never experienced anything like that in my life. It was a it was a party. Like I never went to class. I can count on one hand how many class I went to. Um, 
I just I dropped out. I was just drinking all the time. I would go to frat parties. Um, me and my roommate were selling drugs out of the dorm room, and it was it was real crazy. You know, we were just it was a bunch of girls and, and drugs and alcohol and parties and financial aid money. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I mean, I think that was the being so poor and then getting into VCU and then having them give you thousands of dollars without restraints. It was, I had never experienced anything like it. It was like rock and roll. You know, yeah, no I, doubt. <laughs> you forget that you're supposed to go to class and, and get an education. So I flunked, flunked out with a 0.0 GPA. And um, I had to start all over. When I got into recovery, I went back to community college and um, had to get my grades right. And so my first, when I came into recovery, went to community college, I got a 4.0. And then I ended up saying, you know what, let's try VCU again. And they gave me that opportunity, and I went back and I graduated VCU with a three point five, coming from a zero point zero. So, yeah, yeah, man, I can remember watching you. Like I used to be in awe because I would, you know, I remember, and I would see you around all the time. But I would also see like you know all the stuff on Facebook, and you know I see the stack of books you were reading and all the work you were doing. And like I went to college too, man, and like. uh you know, I didn't make go as far. I haven't been as far as you uh, have. In fact, I haven't even uh, obtained my um, my associates yet. But you know, even with the in the beginning, there was a lot of work for me. But I used to watch. You know, you have all them books and be highlighting all that stuff and reading. And I was just like, I, it would baffle me because I I like that's probably my worst. Uh, the thing I that I that I suck at the most is. Um, you know, learning's always kind of came a little bit easy to me, and so I'm kind of uh, academically lazy in regards to reading and stuff. I always wait to the last minute to do everything, um, yeah. you know, but I, I would watch you do it, man, and it was always uh, inspiring to me, you know, um, to see you, you know, put in that put in that work. So so what, uh, you know, when you got into recovery, I'm, I, I would imagine that, um, you know, after flunking out of VCU that, um, you know, there was probably some doubt about what your scholastic, uh, you know, future looked like. Uh, so what, what kind of, what led you to decide, you know what, I, I really am going to go back to school. I'm going to make this happen. And where did that, um, you know, fire begin to, uh, you know, uh, get stoked or whatever, or, or start to grow in regards to, uh, getting you on the path that you're on now going to law school? Well, I mean, I would go to meetings and, um, I would share at meetings and I remember um, I got sober and my recovery started on the West Coast in Arizona, California. And um, I was share at meetings and, and I remember this guy came up to me at, after the meeting. He was like, man, you need to go to college. And um, I remember early recovery. They always told me to write my goals, what I want to do with my recovery. And um, my first goal was always to graduate college. And uh, my grandfather who was my idol believed in education and he was always on me he was disappointed when I dropped out of VCU so one of my amends was to go back to school and I ended up going to his same community college Mount Sac in in Walnut California and for me I was very scared of my ability to succeed in, um, in school so I did go to community college and my first major was drug and alcohol counseling Call that everybody. Exactly. <laughs> I think it was the best major because I knew the subject and, and it was easy for me to correlate it and it, and I had a passion for it. So it allowed me to want to read it and, and, and to want to figure it out. And so studying drug and alcohol counseling really is psychology and sociology was easy for me because I would go to meetings and, and hear what I studied. And I knew what I studied from a personal level because I was dealing with that, you know. So I, I wanted to read, you know, what psychology was, dual, dual diagnosis. And, and I like I just had a passion for it. And so that started me having the ability to focus like long term on complex ideas. And that just evolved. When, you know, you go to college, you can 
do drug and alcohol counseling, but eventually you have to do your general eds, which are like anthropology, logic, and you start taking these other courses and you're like, oh man. And like I fell in love with other subjects and I found the same passion that I had for drug and alcohol counseling that I had for philosophy, which became my major in political science and the law. And it just, it just grew from there. So, um, so I know a lot of, a lot of people that get on a political science track end up in law, or at least, you know, the ones that I've known. So how did the, like, what, what, what made you decide to start getting into law? Well, I mean, they say lost dreams awaken. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a lawyer, and um, I forgot about it. You know, my first major when I flunked out of VCU was criminal justice, and I just gave up on gave up on it. And um, I remember when I was a little kid, I watched this movie called The Rainmaker with uh, Matt Damon, and he was a lawyer, and um, he was a lawyer doing personal injury, and he was doing, I think it was an insurance claim. And he was going against like the dream team of lawyers. He was fresh out of law school and he just went in the courtroom and just beat them all, you know. And um, ever since then, I was like, I want to be a lawyer. And I forgot all about it. And uh, what ended up happening was at VCU, you have to take your general eds. And one of them was um, lo- uh, not logic, philosophy. And I took philosophy 101 and I fell in love. I fell in love with it because it asked why. And I was, I've always been a why person. And then it's like, what do you do with philosophy? You, you know, what do you do with logic and political science? And most of the track for that is law school. And then all of a sudden, I was like, I always wanted to go to law school. I just remembered. And um, I ended up going to the pre-law advisor and I asked her, what can I do to become a lawyer? And um, she told me about the LSAT and, and applying for schools and and I just started the path, and it was it was amazing. I think a major turning point, too, was Tamir Rice had just happened with the little boy that got killed by the police because he had a toy gun. And um, I remember seeing that, and that sort of fueled it as well, like wanting to be almost a special prosecutor you know, in a situation like that. And so a lot of things were happening in society that made me want to pursue the law even more. And so I know, you know, I know one thing I know about VCU is VCU has an amazing, um, you know, uh, collegiate recovery program. You know, Tom Maynard is is awesome. Uh, you know, I know you. And I also know a couple of the guys, which I'm not going to call their names out, but a couple of guys that you were running with over there. Um, and that that program, man, like the the um, the level of success that I see coming out of there um you know, is, is kind of unparalleled to anything I've seen. It's, it's almost like, so in the addiction field that I work in, there's, um, there is a program for people that are, uh, like medical professionals that get into, you know, uh-huh. that end up jeopardizing basically their medical career as a result of their drug use, um, or, or alcohol use. And then they have to go through this like really intensive track. Um, but their success rate is like through the roof. It's like 80% or something like way higher than any other success rate. Um, that I can think of in regards to, uh, you know, recovery. And so, um, but I kind of see a lot of similar stuff, at least from where I stand uh, over there at VCU. So what what kind of role did, did being a part of something like that? Because I know when I used to go to the well, I'd see you up there, and I know you were real involved with the stuff they had going on over there uh, on top of all the other stuff you were doing. So, you know, what kind of role did that, uh, you know, being able to be in that type of environment, uh, on a college campus as opposed to the environment that you were in uh, before, you know, in the dorms, all that stuff. I, I, like, what do you think, like, what were the benefits of, of, of being around something uh, as amazing as that, the uh, Ramsden Recovery Program over there? Collegiate recovery uh, it changed my entire college experience. I mean, it was the best thing that happened for, for me because, like, at first, my first few years at VCU, I was sort of just going to work, going to school, going to meetings, going to the gym and going home. Like I didn't really have a social life in school. Like I was just really focused. But when I started collegiate recovery, it gave me, it gave me a fellowship with people. Like everybody knows my best friend is Derek and who's in collegiate recovery. And I mean, you, I've never seen somebody work so hard in my life. I, I call him Russell Westbrook because he, he goes so hard, you know, and 
in his recovery and in his academics and just being around people who are not only in recovery but are pursuing higher education and professional fields was so beneficial because we could talk, we could relate on different levels. And then me and him, we lived together on on sober dorms and in apartments. And so we were able to be around each other, feed off each other, motivate each other, and just elevate, you know, and stay in recovery, still go to the jail, still go to the psych ward, still go to the halfway houses, still go and do service and recovery and, and just merge those two worlds. And it was like going to spring break in Florida, clean, you know, like doing things in recovery, clean, going to basketball games, clean. And so meeting other collegiate schools who have the same program, you know, in recovery, it, it was just, a phenomenal experience and and my second time being clean at VCU being sober at VCU was way better than my first experience where I flunked out even though I had a lot of fun it, it doesn't compare to the opportunities the network I mean it was just a hell of an experience I, I I love it to death yeah man I, I've always admired uh you know, what they're doing over there. And I think, you know, one of the things you just brought up too is like, so this morning, for example, I was at, um, I was at a friend of mine's house and, uh, you know, there was a person in recovery and he's got a house and, and, you know, um, there was a person in recovery living literally right next door to him that I know and that you and I both know. And, um, and I, I actually had another friend with me that I had picked him up from his house. And, um, you know, it was just crazy, man, to, to be, um, you know, to, to, and I, you know, they say like there's a certain amount of success rate in recovery or, you know, they give you these numbers, especially in early recovery, like when you're at a treatment center or something like that, they say, you know, look beside you and you know, only one of y'all is going to make it. But dude, let me tell you something, man, like of my, you know, the crew I kind of came in running with, like none of my core group of friends that I came in running with are using, you know what I mean? (laughs) Everybody's got houses, (laughs) like everybody's got jobs, everybody's got careers, kids you know and so i think that um you know the type of people you choose to surround yourself with man um you know and and their drive and zeal for success not only in recovery but in life it, it just for me it, it's played a, a, a phenomenal role uh you know in, in in motivating me to do better you know absolutely and uh so what's it like up there in dc man how's uh how's howard going i love dc i love hustle i mean law school is the thing i've ever done academically in my life <laughs> it's, it's, it's you know being a 1l it's just i always tell people it's like being in the navy seals but just academically <laughs> it's it's, a, it's um it's really hard but i love dc i'm um i commute i commute about three hours a day from northern but i get on the metro and um if you get on the metro out here, you'll see like people in business suits and working on Capitol Hill and working for this law firm. You know, it's so inspiring. So much and everybody's moving. It's very ambitious. It's very, it's just, it matches my personality, you know, and, um, and being at Hustle at law school, it's just, I'm with brilliant, brilliant people. I mean, I'm amazed at my, my, my classmates are just, they're from all over. They're from UCLA. They're from UVA Tech, Georgetown. I mean, the level of insight into the law, the complexity of the law, just the love, the social networking, the just social awareness, the wokeness. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, I, I tell people all the time, Howard is like Wakanda. Like, if you go to I'm on a law school campus. You go to the main campus. It's the School of Dentistry, the School of Engineering, and it's all black people, you know, like just excelling. And it's just, and then you have so many people that came from Howard. I think Nick Cannon goes here. We'll have Kamala. I think I Kamala Harris is always here, you know, and um, it's just, I think with the new movie Us just premiered here, you know, like it's worth happening and networking. It's phenomenal. I love Howard University. It's the best decision I made academically. Period. So, did you? So, what? What? Because I know you had a couple other opportunities, and and we all know that you know that uh, Howard School of Law is uh, it's just one of the top 
in the country. So, um, you know, but what played into your, cause I know you had some other opportunities. Um, did you like, what played into your decision to, to go to Howard? Um, I had got into North Carolina central. I got into a lot of schools actually, but Howard, Howard and Harvard were like my number one. Like I, those were the ones that I really wanted. And I knew Harvard was like a super long shot. And so Howard called me at the very last minute. And um, I was already enrolled in North Carolina. And I was like, you know what? I have to go. And um, I had a lease department and everything at North Carolina. I was already set. I was registered for class. Howard called. I was gone. And um, for me, Thurgood Marshall, you know, Charles Hamilton Houston, if you look at the lawyers that Howard has produced, I mean, we we have so many judges and prosecutors and state's attorneys and and, and corporate attorneys, it, it, the networking. And then if you're ever on the Howard Law School campus, it's just, it's, it's, it's magical, man. It is, it is something I'm in awe when I'm on campus. You see, our teachers are like from Harvard and Yale and, and, and Columbia and all, and, and they're, they're very strict and, and, but they're always on us socially to be aware in whatever field of law we go into. Like either you're a social parasite or you're a social engineer. Like they're on us, you know, and, and they make us great preparers for the field of law, you know. And um, to me, once I got out, it was a no brand. The marshal is, is one of my idols, you know. You know? It's something I had to do. What's your what's your track look like for um you know like I'm sure you have a goal set for you know where you want to go with the degree and I think if I'm if I'm correct you you know why why do you want to do that you know what I mean like what uh, I think you and I had talked and I know you I think one of the things uh, you know uh, I know you said earlier expresses interest in maybe being a special prosecutor or something like that, but, um, you know, what, cause typically speaking, you know, uh, somebody that come from where we come from would, would, would more like more than likely be interested in, you know, doing some type of defense law. So what, what drew you to prosecutorial? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, there's this concept going around now called progressive prosecuting and, um, Pretty much, I think, because of my background, I'm in a great position to compassion on somebody that walks in the courtroom and um, and having that relatability. And so you feel that. like maybe you can do a little bit more, you know, affect better change at that level? Absolutely. Like, if you look at the structure of the law, like I was offered positions at public defense. Unfortunately, a lot of them are overworked and underpaid, you know, and, and when you have such a caseload and the way the system is working, majority, almost 90% are taking deals, you know, because they don't have the time, the resources to go to court. And even if you're placing a lot of time on somebody's head, most times they're going to take a deal and rather risk losing their freedom for 30, 40, 50 years, you know? And so as a prosecutor, you can look and analyze a situation and say, you know, a petty drug charge doesn't warrant a 30-year sentence, you know? And, and just looking at an individual basis and trying to be more pro progressive in the way that we, we handle these situations, you know? And also, like, my ultimate goal is to argue in front of the Supreme Court. You know, I would love to be a solicitor general who represents the United States in front of the Supreme Court. I would love to be an attorney, a state's attorney, or attorney general would be <laughs> very ambitious, but I would love to do that. And, um... <laughs> man, look, be ambitious, man. You know what I you mean? You know, I just... Like, I know you can do that, whatever just, you want to do, bro. I have a way to look at the law from just a, a passionate perspective. You know, like, being... An addict, alcoholic in recovery and understanding the disease concept and knowing like if I'm in front of somebody who's done the same exact exact thing that I did and somebody showed me mercy, 
you know, that's the only reason that I'm here is because of mercy and, and, and people helping me out. You know, I would be remiss if I'm in a courtroom looking at somebody my age, younger, and, and, and handing a sentence that's ultimately going to destroy that person's life, you know, and so being in a position of power and and having that discretion is my goal is to is to be a prosecutor with extreme discretion, you know, to be able to look at an individual and like say, you know what, this is petty and this person needs help. This person is not a criminal, you know, and um, and also there there are situations where people have to be held accountable for the things that they've done, you know, and um, and that's going to be the, the difficult balancing act. You know, it's like I read cases, majority of the cases that I read aren't possession cases. These are cases in which people under the influence commit crimes that are heinous, you know. So it's like on one side, it's like you have compassion, but at the other side, you have somebody's family, you know, that's that's asking for justice, you know. So it's like you're trying to figure that one out. And that's why I'm in law school, you know, to... to to, to develop my concept of justice. And so what's the, uh, you know, how do you feel about the, um, I guess the, uh, how do you gauge the, do you feel like the, um, the people there at Howard, like there's kind of a, cause ultimately man, like what I see from where I work at, cause I work a lot with the courts is we need like really dramatic and drastic change unfortunately like that doesn't happen uh it just does not happen like that right so we have a a system of law that has been you know since probably i'd say maybe around the 70s uh you know kind of started this push towards the 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 quote unquote you know tough on crime um you know which we all know what that really was but uh, but you know kind of started that whole thing and ever since then it's kind of been you know we have a uh a form of law that is really, um, you know, more so based in punishment is than it is around or, or what they would like to call justice, I guess. But really what I see is a lot of a punishment, um, trying to use punishment as a deterrent um, as opposed to like restorative justice and, um, you know, kind of not seeing that, that, uh, and I'm not by any means taking um, anybody's um, decision-making off the table, but when we think of, you know, because people do things and, and they make decisions, but I think one of the things that's missing in um, in law, like you're saying, is, is uh, you know, realizing kind of like the sociology aspect of it, right? Like people's decisions are ultimately influenced by their history and their upbringing and what battles they face internally and externally. Um, and so, um, you know, but I've seen some, some 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 really big change, especially here in Chesterfield. We got Scott Miles as a uh, Commonwealth attorney, which he, he's amazing. But what does it feel like being there at Howard? Do you are you sensing that there's a new generation of lawyers that are coming up, man? They're going to help us absolutely change this I thing, mean, or what? We're about social engineering at Howard, you know, and then it's there is that battle: is do we punish? Do we restore? You know, and um, I think it depends on the crime. Right. And um, what we define as society as a crime, a prosecutor is on behalf of the community, you know, and so the community will determine how we want to react, you know. And so when people are not engaged, when people are not voting at a local level, the prosecutor can only do what the people want them to do, you know, and so that question really isn't towards the law as it is the community. If the community votes and says, you know, we believe in forgiveness and we believe in mercy and empathy, then the prosecutor is an extension of that. But if the people want to punish it, the people want to, you know, retribution, then that's what the prosecutor will do. And you sort of tie his hands or her hands. And so, like you said, the law is the law and it goes back and it's hard to persuade the law emotionally you sort of have to have so much reason legal reasoning and and, and understanding to change it you know and so change through the law is difficult but politically we can make massive moves and i think that's your first stop is local involvement community involvement 
talking to these prosecutors, talking to these states' attorneys and commonwealth attorneys and saying, look, you know, society is, is becoming more forgiving. You know, we, we shouldn't destroy people's lives over drug charges that are really petty, you know, and these drug laws that, like you were saying, that go way, way back, back from Jim Crow, you know, and, and, and these laws that were meant to oppress people. And now what's happening and what we see is this opioid epidemic is targeting a population that it wasn't intended to. And so this is the time while the, these, these white kids are getting affected that you're, you're starting to see these politicians, these attorneys look towards the community and the community saying, we need to forgive, you know, and, and unfortunately it had to happen like that, but we need to take this opportunity to really analyze the laws that we make and pass and how it can affect any population because drugs and alcohol, they don't care what color you are. Yeah, no doubt. I, you know, I hear that a lot. You know, I'm me being, you know, a Caucasian male working in a, a predominantly inner city, you know, where I work at is a, you know, the, the, the majority of the people we work with are, you know, people of color, inner city. And, uh, you know, I hear a lot of, uh, and, and by no means am I discounting the fact that this is true, because it is. But, you know, as soon as it hits the white communities, there's a big uproar. And I, and, I, and I get that. And I understand that that's an issue that we need to look at, too, from a, from a societal standpoint. But, man, like, we're, we're wasting valuable time talking about, you know, what, you know, how it was before. I can say wasting valuable time because it's a definitely a discussion that needs to be had. But, but uh, you know, I, I kind of try to whenever somebody says that to me, I kind of try to gear the, the conversation towards, you know, uh, a solution like well what are we going to do with this opportunity that we have so i think it's very uh, interesting that you brought that up man because i'm i'm the same way man like look we have an opportunity now that some people's ears are listening does it matter how we got the opportunity i mean i guess it does but you know what we need to do is start trying to figure out you know uh changing some of these laws man and because you know ultimately what's going to happen is the people that are if we can get these laws changed the people that are adversely affected by them are going to um, you know, begin to get some, uh, you know, get some help as a result, you know. Uh, but but I want to talk about one thing, man, is, you know, they, you said something about, you know, a lot of the crimes being committed. Because, um, you know, we, we do see a lot of people getting a lot of time for a lot of drug charges, too. Especially now there's like a backlash of yeah. let's get the drug dealer. Um, you know, let's lock up the drug dealer. If the person gets caught yeah. selling drugs, let's give them life, yeah. uh, or charge them with murder. So, uh, so what's your what's your thoughts? I on mean, that majority stance? of the people who sell drugs use drugs, you know. So it's it's the addict in just another form. So that's essentially how these drug laws work, and how people are getting locked up for huge amounts of time. If majority of the people that I know who who sell drugs were addicts and they were selling drugs in order to fund their usage right so you're essentially locking up the addict in just a in just a different avenue like if you look at the way the law is structured we don't criminalize being an addict it's normally the punishment is coming from the the behavior of the addict the selling of the drugs you know the possession in in large amounts the driving while drunk you know is it's the act from the ism. So all drug dealing is nine times out of ten is the act from the ism. And so I don't have to prosecute uh, an addict because he's an addict. I can just catch you while you're selling or while you're in possession. You know, so it sort of defeats that. That The majority of people that I hear say lock up the addicts or either the victim's parents or I hear it a lot from addicts themselves which is weird you know to me i know i know me too i think it's the craziest thing you know like you're just you're digging your own hole with that type of mentality and and so it's like a lot of times too is drug dealing is coming from poverty people are extremely poor with no opportunities no 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 industry whatsoever and they and they're trying to find their life, their family, and they're using selling drugs as an avenue. And then 
being young, like as a kid, I used to sell drugs myself just to fund a life, you know, just to, to do things that I couldn't do because I it takes time to get a job, you know. It takes when your stomach is hungry now and you don't have any resources, you do what's quick and available. And so a lot of times, not only are we locking up addicts, we're locking up poor people, you know, so it, it just... It's just so self-defeating. Yeah, and I, I think that I think that the the thing that I struggle with, you know, from a we'll, we'll say government or, or or institutional standpoint, is that you know it is a documented, well-known. Um, this is not like it's not a conspiracy theory, right? This is well known that like the government helped flood South Central. LA and California and really the United States with crack cocaine that has done, I mean, limit like un immeasurable damage to communities, to people's lives, to, I mean, and nobody was held accountable, but yet you want to take a guy that's on the corner and we know who was behind it. Right. We know like, you know, the president and Oliver North and like these generals that like were, that were sanctioning this type of behavior and no one was held accountable but yet they'll catch somebody on the street with a grandma, a grandma crack and give them 40 years, you know? And so it's like, it's hard for me to, 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 I don't even know the word I'm looking for, but to balance the, the justification that we need to punish people. But, you know, from an institutional standpoint, we don't do that for, for our institutions, right. That, 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 that do the, do a similar thing. How do we take an institution that, 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 you know, uh, did this huge injustice to our country and no one's held accountable, but yet on an individual basis, um, you know, uh, you know, somebody's poor and they're, they're selling drugs or they, they don't really have many other resources because they got a, you know, they got a jacket on them. That's, you know, tons of felonies and they have a hard time getting a license and driving. So they go back to what they know. And so we give them, you know, take their life away and take their kids, parents away for the rest of their life. It's just hard for me to, you know, like I, I get really frustrated talking about it because it's um it's such a it, it just doesn't make sense to me, man. You know that 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 this is how, um, you know our government and our society, you know, you know views drugs, man. Is that you know? And another point to that, I think, when you don't have representation, you know, I think the government has representation. You know, they're very very powerful entities. You know, it's easier to lock up somebody. It's frustrating. You know, we haven't quite figured it out yet that we need to do something about the supply, you know, right. uh, reducing the, I mean, reducing the demand. I'm sorry, reducing the demand, uh, you know, so we can uh, try to limit the supply. But, um, but yeah, so what you got going on, man? Uh, you want spring break? You just offer spring break? What's up with, with school right now? Oh, no, I'm um. I'm in my last month of my first year of law school, so I'm gearing up for finals and memos, and and then I'm a uh, this summer, uh, hopefully, God willing, I'll be at the DOJ, and um, also I, I tried to do a, a week program for the federal public defender's office as well. So I'm trying to do both sides this summer in in the criminal justice area arena, and so just work, just work. You know, um, it's, it's so much like you, we've been talking about. There's so much work to be done. There's so much change necessary. And um, I want to be a part of that movement. You know, I really want to to affect change in society through the law. And so, yeah, hope, my goal is just to be in the DOJ, the, the United States Attorney's Office this summer. And then prior to that, work at federal public defender's office to get both sides and, and to learn both sides and, and yeah that's pretty much what I have this summer going or once I finish this first year all right so I always I always try to ask you know because there's, there's going to be some people listening to this that you know um, I mean all different types of people are going to be listening but you know particularly for you know to and you know give a little bit more uh, hope to people, man, or, you know, give people something that maybe they can begin to investigate um, and read or whatever. What what are some of the most prominent, like, areas or, or things that you've read or heard or or, or, or did that really 
um, you know, reinforce your recovery or reinforce your belief in yourself or just some really powerful moments that you've been through um, that have, that have helped create you, create who you are. You know, it could be a book that you read. It could be something that happened to you. It could be whatever, but I just want to, you know, maybe help, you know, direct some people towards stuff like that, man. And maybe they can, you know, get what you got out of, out of the things that you did. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I study people and I study like great people like Ginsburg and Justice Ginsburg, Obama, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady. Like I study people and I study not only their performances, but like what made them like, how did you become that person? How did you become great? And so um, that really fuels me a lot is just is understanding the mind of, of people who are doing phenomenal work. And, um, for me, the 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 event that changed a lot, that made me go towards recovery, that really made me think about who I want to be in society was Barack Obama becoming the president of the United States of America was phenomenal. Like I had never cared about politics whatsoever. And I I watched his entire campaign and I remember just being in awe, like just I just fell in love. I was, I mean, a bromance. I mean, I was just, I, he was so cool. He was so calm. He was black. He was intelligent. He went to Harvard law. You know, he, he married a black woman who went to Harvard law, you know, a power couple, you know, they were very successful, very socially conscious, even at high levels and just watching that, and idolizing that, it made me want to look at my life. I think JG said Barack Obama made the game irrelevant, like because he he demonstrated what power and success and black brilliance and excellence was, and he gave me something to reach towards. And I just followed his path, like he. And I was early in recovery, and so it just the timing lined up where I had somebody I could look at, and Martin Luther King was another one, like. I, I studied Martin Luther King. I watched and listened to every single lecture and sermon he gave. I studied his books, you know, and just certain people, they just I just gravitated towards. Right now, I'm in love with Justice Ginsburg. Like I, I'm studying her, and she's just oh my god, she is phenomenal. You know, like Oprah and Serena Williams, and it's so many great people that I, you know, like I said, I didn't have my father, so I had to find idols. You know. And I had to find role models and um, just studying people allowed me to sort of evolve into a person that I wanted to be. Has there been any type of underlying, um, so, you know, when you, when you get to studying people and you study stuff like that, anything you study, really, you begin to see like some underlying similarities or um, like an underlying current of, of, of something that binds that type of greatness together. Um, and, you know, and I know that you're because I, I follow you, man. I know you're obsessed with greatness, man, because <laughs> <I, laughs> so am I. Right. So is there have you. Hello. That like an underlying current of greatness between, you know, that runs between all these people. Oh, absolutely. Like for one, like we talked about earlier, they surround themselves with positive people who are better than them, you know, and, and they look up to them. Like there's a story about um, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan heard that Magic Johnson practiced five hours a day. So he started practicing six hours a day. You know, it's like when you surround yourself with greatness, it's, it's infectious, you know, and then obviously they're working extremely hard and making extreme sacrifices to the point where they almost seem antisocial, but they're just so focused on the goal you know, the championship, that it doesn't matter what other people think about them because they have one goal, and that's to win. You know, Tom Brady, you know, like, I think, and another thing that I, a common thread is I'm going to prove you wrong, right? I'm going to show you. Like, I don't care what you think about me, say about me. If you don't believe in me, I'm still going to be victorious. I'm still going to win. Like, and they have that, that almost that ego, that that self-belief like this has to get done you know and and while everybody's playing we're still working you know and, and 
and then you'll see the results in the end. And rather than me envying or or being angry or hating that person, I just gravitate towards that. Like I just love to come back. I love the. I mean, you just feel it when you get the goosebumps when you see phenomenal performances. And I always told myself, why not me? Why can't I be that person in which I I idolize, you know? And, I, and there's no reason I can't. If I stay focused and I continue on this path and I don't allow these things to distract me, you know, I'm going to be all right. So listen, so in recovery, though, they teach us, you know, like, so ego is like a very, um, <laughs> it's like taboo. <laughs> You know, in right. recovery, it's almost like money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, right. <laughs> and I, I battle with these things, Kevin, because it's like, how do you balance that? Like, how do you balance the the the, the striving of greatness um, with the principles of recovery, or how do you reconcile the two? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we have to read carefully, and I think it's we should never let money, property or prestige divert us from our primary purpose, right? And uh, our, our purpose is to be of service to other people. And to me, like, the greatest service you can give is to demonstrate excellence, right? Like, because that's what is motivating people. That's the hope, right? When I came in and I was, I had nothing and, and I didn't believe in myself and I heard a person share their story, like, this is where I was. And this is where I am now. And I could see it. That gave me hope. When I heard people say I went back to school, when I bought a house, I became a father. My kids have never seen me drink. Those, so that there was a, that primary purpose is still fulfilled. And that, that person had to get to that point through that path of greatness. You don't, you don't get there by most of it just doesn't occur it's not like magic all of a sudden these things happen you have to work to be great and once you're great you're shining that light you're 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 a spare influence you know and and, and you're gonna start helping more people and more people are gonna want to figure out well how did he do that right so it's sort of like they're both correlated Man, that was a great answer, man. That just motivated me, you know. What I mean? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, man. So look, I um, you know, I ain't got a lot of time left on here, man. But I just want to give you a couple minutes, man. If you got, you know, some type of message, man, for people that are out there struggling, um, or or you know, not just struggling with addiction because you know we struggle with that, but struggling with self doubt, struggling yeah. with you know mental health, struggling with you know poverty or just struggling period because one thing i begin to understand and i think i mentioned this on a previous podcast is that you know as as people with addiction issues like i'm starting to realize man that like that we really like suffer with just a uh uh the human condition like this thing is this condition that we suffer with though it may be special or, or a little bit different for a person with a substance use disorder, like human, the human condition is, is struggle and suffrage. And so, you know, what do you have for somebody that's out there that's struggling with whatever, man, to kind of, you know, give somebody some last words? Me too. You know, like I, I get it. You know, I identify, I've struggled with all those things and, and I, I believe it's possible to overcome it all, you know, um, Struggle and challenge are necessary. They're part of life. Everybody goes through it. Unfortunately, with addicts and alcoholics, we found a solution through drugs and alcohol. And now in recovery, we have to figure it out in different means and through spirituality, whatever that means to you. But, like, for me, like, I just, I had people who believed in me. Like, it's a community. Like, you cannot do this alone. Um, you have to seek help. You have to ask for help. And you have to accept that help and you have to do <laughs> what they suggest, you know, and um, even if you don't believe it and consistency is the key, you know, I just showed up. I just, no matter how morally wrong I was or bad or whatever I thought about myself, whatever they thought about me, I just kept showing up. I kept sitting in the same seat, asking questions, saying, you know what, I'm going to figure this out, you know, and um I have to say it because it's been on my heart. You know, one of the greatest 
you know, illustrations of that is when Tom Brady was down 28 to three in the third quarter, you know, and I, I, to me, it's like when you feel depressed and you feel down, it feels like you're down 28-3 with no time left. But all he did was one play at a time, one play at a time, and he brought himself back to become the champion. And that's the way I live my life. Like, I might be down, you know, but I'm not going to quit. I'll never quit. I'll just keep fighting, and I'm going to figure it out. And I think if you have that mentality that, you know what, I'm down, but it's not over. And it's possible. You can conquer anything. Man, hey, man, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. I thank you so much, man. This has been very, uh, very powerful, very enlightening, man. I I, I wish you the best um, out there at Howard, man. I hope to see you when you come back in town. Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, maybe when I get up there, man, we can catch up. Absolutely. You know, if I can get up to D.C. I'll be up there uh, April 25th uh, for the McShane Awards banquet up there. Okay. So, uh you know, if you're up there, I'll, I'll contact you when I get up there, and uh, maybe we can get up. Absolutely, man. I love seeing you. I see what you're doing, man. Thank you for having me on your show, and um, keep it up, man. I see you're doing great work, and, and I love watching you, man. All right, man. I love you, man. You take care of yourself. Yes, sir. Here at the Real Life Community Center, Our mission is to assist individuals who have been impacted by incarceration, homelessness, who are battling addiction to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community to hinder their prosperity and their ability to have a thriving future. Our vision is to walk alongside our clients, to see them grow into prosperous and thriving life while highlighting the barriers associated with those exiting incarceration and overcoming addiction in order to reduce the negative stigmas and stereotypes. Everyday men and women looking for second chances and redemption, walk through our doors. They are seeking hope, motivation, and skills in order to make that change. Through community partnerships and financial investments, Real Life is able to provide clients specifically with what they need, intense case management, an expected mother's program, recovery housing or housing referrals, mental health services, classes and groups, job preparation and placement, transportation assistance, substance use disorder support, educational opportunities, a clothing closet, a computer lab, and more. And most important, unconditional love and support. All donations directly support providing services to further our mission of assisting individuals who have been impacted by incarceration or homelessness or those battling a substance use disorder to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community that hinder their prosperity and ability to have a thriving future. If you would like to donate to Real Life Community Center, you can donate on our webpage, www.reallifeprogram.org backslash donate, or you can donate directly through the anchor.fm app or listening platform.